the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Clark Hilton is engineering today's program. James Blend is producing. Today we're going to talk with Alexandra Kirkendall, author of Loving My Actual Neighbor, Seven Practices to Treasure the People Right in Front of You. It's based on Second Peter. She'll join us later this hour. We're also going to talk with Jeremiah Gallus, who is a legal counsel with the Alliance Defending Freedom, where he's a key member of the Center for Christian Ministries. We're going to talk about a lawsuit filed by three churches in California challenging the California Department of Managed Health. Healthcare's mandate forcing churches to pay for elective abortions in their health insurance plans. And it will be interesting to see the role that Planned Parenthood played in this whole uh, configuration. So that's uh, coming up on today's program. First, to look at some of the headlines, President Trump announced Sunday that Homeland Security Secretary Kirsten Nielsen will be leaving her position after 16 months in the job. Nielsen tweeted on Sunday evening that she had submitted her resignation. The president said that U.S. Customs and Border Protection Commissioner Kevin McLeanan uh, will replace Nielsen as acting secretary, tweeting, I have confidence that Kevin will do a great job, end quote. Nielsen met with the president at the White House on Sunday with ongoing influx of immigrants at the U.S.-Mexico border that's been taxing America's immigration system and sparking frustration within the administration. The Associated Press cited two sources uh, reported that Nielsen had been frustrated with the difficulty of getting other departments to help deal with the growing number of families crossing the southern border. And Democrats, particularly those eyeing the White House in 2020 were quick to respond on Sunday after the president's announcement about time, said Elizabeth Warren, uh, tweeting, um, adding that in her view, Nielsen's legacy of tearing innocent families apart will follow her for the rest of her life and she should be ashamed of the role she played. She was completely unqualified to lead DHS and that's why I voted against confirming her. Now, the interesting thing is what she's referring to was also the case prior to the uh, Trump administration, but it didn't matter then because if you like the guy in the White House, you overlook it. That's how politics is done. Uh, It doesn't matter which side you happen to be on. It seems less offensive when your guy does it, more offensive when the other guy does. Meanwhile, Senator Kamala Harris uh, wrote that Kirsten Nielsen misled the American people, defeated Trump's inhumane policy of separating children from their parents, which, by the way, was in place because of decisions made by the court and by Congress and their failure to do anything about it. It was long past time for her to go again. That's what um, what's being said. Meanwhile, American tourist Kimberly Sue Endicott and her safari guide were freed days after a group of men kidnapped them at gunpoint in Uganda's Queen Elizabeth National Park and demanded a ransom for their safe release, officials said on Sunday. Endicott and the driver Jean-Paul Marengo something. Uh, were freed from their captors, uh, were in good health, according to the Uganda police force uh, in a Twitter message. The... Um, Question remained whether or not the kidnappers were, in fact, granted the ransom they had demanded, $500,000 for the safe return of the pair. But it was unclear if the money was paid. President Trump on Sunday also confirmed their release, tweeting, pleased to report that the American tourist and tour guide that were abducted in Uganda have been released. 
And Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell will be able to get judge and executive branch appointees confirmed much faster now, the Washington Examiner reports. The Kentucky Republican wasted no time in advancing his first batch before adjoining rather adjourning the Senate on Thursday. McConnell lined up votes on four district court nominees, a sub-cabinet pick and the president's designee to serve as ambassador to Saudi Arabia. And he plans to bring up more nominations today and has probably already done so. Well, the examiner also reports that Representative Devin Nunez this week will be sending the Justice Department eight criminal referrals pertaining to the Democrats' Russian collusion witch hunt. According to Nunez, the grounds for the referrals vary from lying to Congress, misleading Congress, leaking classified information, conspiring to lie to the FISA court and conspiring um, to manipulate intelligence. He added there are about a dozen highly sensitive uh, classified information leaks that were given to only a few reporters over the last two and a half plus years. So we don't know if there's actually um, been any leaks and inve- leak investigations that have been open. But we do believe that we've um, got pretty good information and a pretty good idea of who could be behind these leaks, end quote. Well, as the examiner noted, Nunez said that the people ensnared in his eight-person referral may not be all of them, end quote. Well, acting White House Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney told Fox News Sunday that Democrats will never see President Trump's tax returns days after a House Democrat committee chairman made the unprecedented demand that the IRS provide the documents. As uh, Mulvaney put it, that's an issue that was already litigated during the election. The voters knew the president could Uh, have given his tax returns. They knew that he didn't, and they elected him anyway. If Democrats don't get what they want in the Mueller report, uh, they're going to ask for the taxes. If they don't get what they want in the taxes, they're going to ask for something else, end quote. Well, according to the Des Moines Register, Senator Bernie Sanders said people convicted of felonies should never lose access to the ballot box in the first place. He opined, you're paying a price, you're committing a, uh, you've committed a crime, you're in jail. That's bad, but you're still living in American society and you have a right to vote. Remember, some prisoners are murderers who took away another person's right to vote. I would remind you. Well, a former House Democrat staff uh, pleaded, uh, staffer rather pleaded guilty on Friday to five federal offenses related to posting online the personal information of five Republican senators, including Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell of Kentucky, during hearings for then-Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh. He's scheduled to be sentenced in Washington on June the 13th. He could face between two and five years in prison. And the Daily Caller reveals that Twitter appears to be one of the big tech companies to back out of an alliance with the Southern Poverty Law Center after the group's longtime president was fired for unspecified conduct reasons. A Twitter employee explained the SPLC is not a member of Twitter's Trust and Safety Council or a partner um, in the company uh, they have worked with uh, recently, though the caller says the source did not disclose when Twitter distanced itself from the organization. The conservative bloc wants each tech giant to follow suit. The U.S. Supreme Court on Friday handed another setback to gun rights advocates challenging the president's ban on bump stock devices that enable semi-automatic weapons to fire rapidly, Reuters reports. With two uh, conservative justices dissenting, the court refused to temporarily exempt from the ban a group of plaintiffs, including the Firearms Policy Foundation, while their legal challenge continues to be litigated in Washington. And President Trump said on Friday he will skip this year's White House Correspondents Association dinner 
and hold a rally instead. The dinner is boring and so negative that we're going to hold a very positive rally, he told reporters as he left the White House for a trip to the uh, southern border. The commander-in-chief has yet to attend one of these events, these annual events during his presidency, bucking tradition and instead opting to hold campaign rallies the same night as the dinner. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 19 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. In the 5 o'clock hour, back at 5 o'clock, we'll talk with Alexandra Kirkendall, author of Loving My Actual Neighbor, Seven Practices to Treasure the People Right in Front of You. You can check out Second Peter for her, um, her text. On this day in 2009, Somali pirates hijacked the U.S. flagged Maersk, Alabama, and took Captain Richard Phillips captive. Maybe you saw the movie. Phillips is rescued four days later by Navy SEAL snipers who shot three of the pirates. And on this day in 1974, Hank Aaron of the Atlantic Braves smacks his 715th career home run in a game against the Los Angeles Dodgers. The Los Angeles Dodgers breaking Babe Ruth's record. And on this day in 1952, President Harry S. Truman seizes the American steel industry to avert a nationwide strike. The Supreme Court later rules that Truman had overstepped his authority, opening the way for a seven-week strike by steel workers. I mentioned earlier that Kirsten Nielsen has uh, resigned. U.S. Secret Service Director Randolph Tex um, Alice is uh, stepping down as well from his post uh, in the latest shakeup at the Department of Homeland Security following ongoing, a rather outgoing Secretary Kirsten Nielsen's resignation. Sources say that uh, he told uh, was told rather 10 days ago to prepare an exit plan and a signal that a transition in leadership at the Department of Homeland Security was imminent. Um, Ailes also told was told that uh, he should be prepared to leave his post as head of the Secret Service as part of that transition. He will remain in his role until a new head of uh, the USSS uh, is uh, appointed, according to sources. His departure comes on the heels of Nielsen's resignation, or ouster, and according to uh, the source, uh, has nothing to do with the Mar-a-Lago incident when a woman was arrested at the president's Florida property after uh, allegedly carrying two Chinese passports and malware. Now, interestingly, there is an update on that story. The woman um, arrested at the uh, president's Mar-a-Lago club last month had $8,000 in U.S. and Chinese currency in her hotel room, as well as a uh, signal detector meant to spot hidden cameras, a federal prosecutor in Florida said today. Her name is Yu Jing Zhang, 32. She was ordered held until her bond hearing resumed on the 15th of um, April in Palm, uh, West Palm Beach Federal Court. Uh, Zhang was arrested on the 30th of last month and was charged with unlawfully entering a restricted area and making false statements to federal law enforcement. Prosecutors uh, told U.S. Magistrate Judge William uh, Matterman that the uh, government was not making um, allegations of spying against Jang at this time, but noted there are a lot of questions that remain to be answered. Uh, there was equipment on her, and they've discovered in her room uh, additional equipment that could be used for that purpose. But again, no charges have specifically mentioned spying as of yet. Well, Florida has one of the largest illegal immigration populations in the country, and its new governor wants to make sure they don't have protection from local authorities. Republican Governor Ron DeSantis is pushing for a ban on sanctuary cities that refuse to cooperate with federal immigration authorities. Several bills making their way through the state legislature would effectively make it against the law. 
for police departments to refuse to cooperate with federal immigration officials. If a law enforcement official refuses, they could be fined or fired. This problem that we have right now, the uh, governor went on to say, is a problem that's been festering in the United States because it's not been solved by the federal government for the past 40 years. Uh, Representative uh, Blaze let's see, Angolia uh, said, quite frankly, you know, since the last mass amnesty, if you will, in 1986 under Ronald Reagan, we were always promised that we would have some sort of legal immigration reform and it never came and it hasn't yet. And all of um, uh, its efforts by the Republican-led state lawmakers, buoyed by DeSantis, to toughen the rules on illegal immigration, the sanctuary city ban, which uh, passed the Senate Infrastructure and Security Committee, will be voted on by both chambers before May the 3rd. Florida is home to 775,000 known illegal immigrants out of the 10.7 million present in the United States, ranking the state third among all states. And President Trump on Monday formally labeled Iran's Revolutionary Guard a foreign terrorist organization and Washington's first such designation for an entire foreign government entity. Well, the announcement, which officials said would put the military organization on the same level as terror groups like Hezbollah and Hamas, is the latest administration step to increase pressure on Iran. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, citing the uh, Iranian uh, guard ties to terror plots, said the designation recognizes a basic reality. That designation is a direct response to an outlaw regime and should surprise no one, he said. The uh, uh, Republican guard masquerades as a legitimate military organization, but none of us should be fooled, In quote. Well, the designation imposes sanctions that include freezes on assets from the um, the Republican Guard uh, that that they may have in the United States jurisdictions and a ban on Americans doing business with it. The move also allows the U.S. to deny entry to people found to have provided the Guard with material support or prosecute them for sanctions violations. In a statement, the president said the unprecedented move underscores the fact that Iran's actions are fundamentally different from those of other governments. He warned if you were going to do business with the Iranian a Republican guard, you will be bankrolling terrorism. This action sends a clear message to Tehran that its support for the terrorism of around the world has serious consequences. Well, administration officials have said the step will further isolate Iran and make clear that the United States won't tolerate Iran's continued support for rebel groups and others that destabilize the Middle East. Uh, the active support of terrorism is unacceptable, and the Department of Justice continues to support the administration's efforts to hold the Iranian regime accountable for its actions, Attorney General William Barr uh, says in response. Well, Felicity Huffman has agreed to plead guilty in the college admissions cheating scam that has ensnared wealthy parents. On Monday, the 56-year-old actress announced her decision, explaining that her she accepts full responsibility for her actions. She went on to say, the Desperate Housewives alum, in a statement, I am pleading guilty to the charge brought against me by the United States Attorney's Office. I am in full acceptance of my guilt and with deep regret and shame over what I have done. I accept full responsibility for my actions and I will accept the consequences that stem from these actions. She continued, I am ashamed of the pain I have caused my daughter, my family, my friends, my colleagues and the educational community. I want to apologize to them and especially I want to apologize to the students who work hard every day to get into college and to their parents who make tremendous sacrifices to support their children 
and do so honestly. My daughter knew absolutely nothing about my actions, and in my misguided and profoundly wrong way, I have betrayed her. This transgression toward her and the public I will carry for the rest of my life. My desire to help my daughter is no excuse to break the law or engage in dishonesty, she concluded. I am in full acceptance of my guilt and will... And with deep regret and shame over what I have done. Well, the Department of Justice revealed uh, earlier today that Huffman was one of 11 defendants who was charged with one count of conspiracy to commit mail fraud and honest uh, services mail fraud and have agreed to plead guilty pursuant to plea agreements. In addition, two other defendants who were facing other charges both agreed to plead guilty to one count of conspiracy to commit mail fraud and honest services mail fraud, federal prosecutors said. The former head coach uh, for the men's tennis team at the University of Texas at Austin was also charged and has agreed to plead guilty to one count of conspiracy to commit fraud and honest services mail fraud. Last week, Huffman appeared in a Boston federal court. She is accused of paying $15,000 disguised as a tax-deductible charitable donation so her daughter could take part in an apparently rigged college ex- uh, entrance exam. Court documents stated that a cooperating uh, witness met with the actress and her husband, Uh, Shameless star William Macy at their Los Angeles home and explained to them what he controlled, a testing center, and could have someone um, uh, could have rather someone secretly alter her daughter's answers. The person told investigators the couple agreed to the plan. So not just the wife, but the couple. Huffman was arrested and released on two hundred and fifty thousand dollars bond last month. Macy has not been charged. Macy, her husband. More than four dozen people have been charged in uh, the nationwide scam, which is Alleged to have placed students in top-tier schools like Yale, Georgetown, Stanford, the University of Southern California, UCLA, and the University of Texas, a federal investigation into the matter dubbed Operation Varsity Blues has been ongoing for more than a year. Senator Bernie Sanders has long fought to restore voting rights for felons who've completed their prison sentences. Now the presidential candidate wants to go a big step further, arguing that those currently being uh, held behind bars should be able to vote, too. Asked on the campaign trail in uh, Iowa on Saturday if those in prison should have the right to vote, the independent senator from Vermont, who's making his second straight bid for the Democratic nomination, answered, I think that is absolutely the direction we should go. In my state, what we do is separate. You, uh, you've paid the price. You've committed a crime. You're in jail. That's bad, he explained. But you're still living in American society and you have a right to vote. I believe in that. Yes, I do. Vermont, rather, and Maine are the only states to allow felons currently serving their sentence to vote. The issue of voting rights for felons is in the spotlight in Iowa, the state that votes first in the presidential caucus and primary calendar. The Hawkeye State and Kentucky are the only two in the nation to permanently disenfranchise everyone with felony convictions from ever voting. And three more Democratic officials are getting ready to run for president. Meanwhile, Democrats in Washington continue to hope that the Mueller report includes something significant that Attorney General Barr forgot to mention. And progressives start to openly discuss why uh, President Obama's era was a disappointment. Almost uh, every Democrat is running for president, some tongue-in-cheek have said. Senator Michael Bennett of Colorado will be uh, will have surgery, rather, to address a diagnosis of prostate cancer. He intends to go ahead with his plans for a presidential campaign if the surgery goes well. Ohio Congressman Tim Ryan is reportedly uh, ready to announce his own presidential campaign. California Congressman Eric Swalwell is apparently jumping into the uh, 
uh, future as well. Former Georgia gubernatorial candidate Stacey Abrams says she's seriously thinking about it, but might not make up her own mind until September. And that doesn't even include uh, some of the others who have uh, ind- indicated their interests, Mike Gravel, Marianne Williamson, Wayne Messam, um, with uh, Bennett, Ryan, and Swal- Swalwell. That makes 21 uh, who are either in the race or on the edge of making an announcement. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 37 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, a Maryland man inspired by the Islamic State Terror Network allegedly planned to ram a truck into disbelievers, his uh, word, at a popular tourist spot and keep driving and driving and driving nonstop, according to U.S. officials today. Rondell Henry, the 28-year-old from Germantown, was charged by federal prosecutors with interstate transportation of a stolen vehicle, but officials said more charges could follow. Today, the government filed a motion arguing that Henry to uh, arguing for Henry to be detained pending trial as a flight risk and a danger to the community. Specifically, the government detention memo alleges that Henry, the uh, uh, perpetrator or would-be perpetrator who claimed to be inspired by the ISIS terrorist organization, stole a U-Haul truck with the intention of using it as a weapon against pedestrians on sidewalks within the National Harbor Complex along the Potomac River, the U.S. Attorney's Office for the District of Maryland says. Well, Henry has had hatred toward those who don't practice Islam for two years, officials said Monday, adding that he was allegedly inspired from videos of terror of uh, foreign terrorists. He allegedly planned to conduct a similar attack to uh, the truck attack uh, in Nice, France in 2016. Authorities say he admitted that he wanted to create panic and chaos. After stealing the van, he drove around arriving at Dulles International Airport in Virginia at approximately 5 a.m. on Wednesday, the 27th of March. The government's motion for detention alleges that he exited his U-Haul and entered the terminal trying to find a way through security, allegedly to harm disbelievers in a way designed to maximize publicity. After more than two hours of uh, failing to breach Dulles' security uh, perimeter, he allegedly returned to the U-Haul. He then allegedly proceeded to the National Harbor. The motion for uh, detention uh, claimed that he parked the U-Haul, walked around a popular part of the National Harbor. According to the motion for detention, he finally broke into a boat to hide overnight. By the following morning, uh, the 28th of March, which was a Thursday, police officers had discovered the location of the stolen U-Haul. When he uh, leapt over the security fence from the uh, boat dock, observant uh, Prince George's County police officers arrested him and the investigation continues. Well, some new Facebook users have reportedly been uh, asked to hand over their email address passwords as part of the sign up process. Well, as has been reported, when some new users sign up to Facebook, they're met with the message to continue using Facebook. You'll need to confirm your email. Since you signed up with email address, you can do that automatically through email host website. Well, the uh, form box uh, below the message then asks users to enter their email password. And while there is a um, great uh, great outline underneath that says Facebook won't save your password, giving external account details such as passwords to other websites, especially ones uh, that have such a power uh, and a poor history of protecting customers' data is never a good idea. Well, according to Business Insider, if a new user does enter the password for an email address, a pop-up appears that says Facebook is importing contacts 
uh, despite users not giving permission for the social media site to do so. It's unclear whether Facebook is actually pulling in contacts as um, it did uh, to uh, rather as it did not add any of the uh, contact list entries that were made as uh, part of the test. Well, it appears that these peculiar password boxes are only reserved uh, for certain email accounts, such as, well, I won't even mention which they are. Gmail users, for example, don't uh, see the option as Facebook instead suggests verifying your identity using the authorization tool um, uh, of another kind, which does not require you to enter your password. We know that uh, Facebook was discovered to have um, collected and then made uh, passwords available on its system at some point in the not too uh, recent past. So this is raising some concerns. Meanwhile, Facebook, which has been inundated with negative press coverage lately for reasons uh, that it should, has found a new way to take its message directly to the public by paying a major British newspaper to run positive stories about it. The tech giant has partnered with the Daily Telegraph, a broadcast, uh, a broadsheet in the UK, to run a series of articles that defend Mark Zuckerberg's uh, company on a range of issues that have um, plagued the uh, social media network, including terrorist content, hate speech, cyberbullying, fake accounts, and so on, according to Business Insider. Well, the series produced by the newspaper's sponsored content unit is called Being Human in the Information Age and has already published some 26 stories over the last month to run in print and online, again, reported by Business Insider. Fake news, cyberbullying, artificial intelligence, it seems like life in the Internet age can be a scary place, the articles reportedly say. That's why Telegraph, Spark, and Facebook have teamed up to show how Facebook and other social media platforms are harnessing the power of the Internet to protect your personal data. The tech company's use of sponsored content, which is a form of um, native advertising that some critics claim blurs the line between editorial and ad sales, is one way that Facebook is uh, pushing back on several years of unrelenting and often scathing coverage about scandals over privacy, hate speech and election integrity. Facebook uh, spokesperson Vicky Gomes told Business Insider that this is a part of the larger marketing effort in the U.K. with the goal of educating and driving awareness of our local investment initiatives and partnerships here in the UK that have a positive impact on people's lives. It's not always clear that it's been paid for uh, by the way these um, columns, if you will, editorials are being published. Well, laptops replace teachers, kiosks replace clerks, tablets replace nurses, iPhones replace friends. For America's middle class and working class, this is the future and increasingly the present, as told by the New York Times technology reporter Timothy Carney. Human contact is becoming a luxury good, the reporter Nellie Bowles writes. Well, as more screens appear in the lives of the poor, screens are disappearing from the lives of the rich. The richer you are, the more you spend off screen. Well, because despite the bottomless hype about the glories of the digital age, the endless subsidies for tech in the classroom and the outsized reverence we have for Silicon Valley innovators, it hasn't been healthy for us to move our lives to the Internet and or our uh, ties to screens. Well, the science isn't settled, but there's plenty of reason to believe that hours spent staring at and poking at screens is not good for us, particularly for our children. Perhaps the most telling evidence is the behavior of the very people making and selling the screens. Wealthy Silicon Valley engineers and executives go to great lengths to limit their children's screen time. 
As the recent Times piece spells out, America's elites are exerting impressive effort to maximize human contact and interpersonal experiences in their own lives. This isn't easy. It takes money. For parents, minimizing kids' screen time requires immersing your children in an environment where social media and smartphones are restricted or shunned. Such environments are very rare for those in the middle class and the working class. Working class people simply have fewer resources to tear their kids away from addictive screens. One result, wealthy kids are growing up with less screen time. Poor kids are growing up with more. How comfortable someone is with human engagement could become a new class marker. America's relationship with tech screens and social media is still developing, but it seems that there are questions yet unanswered. These swift and radical changes in American culture, all hailed unequivocally as as progressive or progress, have created a world that's more convenient for the elites. They can navigate the new reality that they've helped create, but it can be very trying for everyone else. Sprawling suburbia has been built by cars rather than humans. Local walkabout downtowns have given way to inhuman strip malls at the periphery. The old idea of a neighborhood has become scarce. It's less common to bump into neighbors as picking up a gallon of milk requires a car. There's a lot less uh, letting kids run around and play and walk to school. As a result, we're less likely to find our tight-knit community in a human-scale physical space, such as a block or a village. The elites who can afford two cars, whose office jobs offer flexible hours and schedules, and who are more likely to be married, can build their institutions of civil society more deliberately when little platoons are less likely to form organically. Well, these rapid changes are sold to us as progress. We're told that our kids can't succeed in the modern world if they're not Fluent in the newest technology, we're told the screens are democratizing. They're efficient, but rapid changes to complex systems always create disruptions. The elites who usher these rapid changes typically benefit from them. The rest of society often finds itself as a stranger in a new land. Something to consider. 46 minutes after 4 o'clock. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 51 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. In our next hour, we'll talk with author Alexandra Kirkendall. Her book is titled Loving My Actual Neighbor, Seven Practices to Treasure the People Right in Front of You. We'll also talk with uh, Jeremiah Gallus. He's legal counsel with Alliance Defending Freedom. Uh, He also is a key member of their Center for Christian Ministries. We're going to talk about a lawsuit involving three churches against the California Department of Managed Health Care and their mandate forcing churches to pay for elective abortions in their health insurance plans and the role that Planned Parenthood is uh, playing in all of this. Well, this month, newsrooms across the state are highlighting the public health crisis of death by suicide. The goal of breaking the silence is not only to put a spotlight on a problem that claimed the lives of more than 800 Oregonians last year, but also examine research into how prevention can and does work and offer uh, listeners, readers, viewers resources to help if they or those they know are in crisis. Um, The coverage begins, uh, if it hasn't already, and will run for about a week. The participating media outlets are using a common set of data. They have loosely coordinated their coverage in an effort to avoid duplication and better amplify all of the work. When possible, they promote each other's uh, stories, but all of them can be found at BreakingTheSilenceOR.com, BreakingTheSilenceOR.com. At the same time, two bills are making their way 
uh, for a vote in the Oregon legislature that would expand assisted suicide. They're scheduled for committee votes. I'm talking, of course, about Senate Bill 579 and House Bill 2217. Um, uh, the two bills expanding assisted suicide are scheduled for committee votes, uh, I believe, both in one way or the other tomorrow. Senate Bill 579 is scheduled for a Senate Judiciary Committee hearing. Oh, I should say that was last week. It uh, is being followed by a vote uh, that's coming up. Uh, it removes the requirement that a near-death patient wait 15 days before killing themselves by legal assisted suicide. This bill would also allow someone with malicious intent to uh, pressure a, a dying person to request they wouldn't uh, wouldn't have the time to reconsider or make a different decision and so on, receive and take these uh, deadly drugs on the same day rather than consider other options or to take some time to really consider if that's uh, the decision they want to make. House Bill 2217 was scheduled for the House Health Care Committee vote. That's coming up tomorrow. A, ride, a range of people testified against this bill at the hearing. Some of you might be surprised. The hearing was in March. It included medical professionals. Um, uh, House Bill 2217 expands a dangerous loophole in Oregon's physician-assisted suicide law. That bill expands the way the deadly prescriptions can be used. This will make it far easier for a person with an assisted suicide prescription to have the drug illegally administered by someone else, uh, which would be considered euthanasia. Uh, So again, uh, Senate Bill 579, House Bill 2217, if you'd like to communicate with your uh, lawmakers, you can go to Oregon Right to Life's website. They're a political action committee, and there are links uh, to help you determine if you don't know who your um, legislator is and to express your views on the subject. Meanwhile, a toxicology specialist has found a connection between legalized marijuana and a threefold increase in related visits to emergency rooms in Colorado for heart and other issues, confirming that cannabis poses some health risks. Marijuana may be recreational activity for many, but marijuana-infused edibles in particular have been subject to scrutiny because of their ties to a jump in patients seeking medical treatment. The new study from researchers from the University of Colorado School of Medicine found that marijuana-related ER visits rather tripled between 2012 and 2016. The study also found that people consuming marijuana edibles suffer from toxic reactions at higher levels than those who simply smoke the drug. These edibles typically include brownies and other baked goods. Uh, Dr. Andrew Monty, a professor of, um, at the medical school in Anschutz campus, was lead author of the research paper that was published last Tuesday in the Annals of Internal Medicine, touted as the first study to show an increased rate of adverse health events linked to marijuana edibles. Now, some um, patients will have psychoses, hallucinations, and they'll hear things. Uh, also, an emergency medical and toxicology specialist um, from UC Health University in Colorado Hospital told the website, the more common thing is acute anxiety, panic attacks, and very high heart rates. These, there's a much higher risk uh, with taking, edi- edi- let's get it right, edible um, agents. It's uh, so unpredictable in terms of its effect, and it's not clear uh, because the study, or at least the reference to the study, does not indicate uh, what makes those uh, worse than uh, smoking. Well, Colorado legalized medical marijuana shops in 2009, then legalized recreational marijuana use in 2014. Since the legalization of marijuana in some jurisdictions across the U.S., uh, the U.S. public health experts have called for better quality control 
of the drug. ER visits by those consuming uh, edibles have risen since Colorado legalized marijuana use for both cardiac and psychiatric problems, the study found. From 2012 to 2016, the study found a total of 10,000 ER visits were tied to patients who previously smoked marijuana or used edibles. More than 25% of the ER visits involved symptoms related to marijuana use. Visits related to toxic reactions from edibles were 33 times higher than expected, the study found. Another finding, marijuana users often suffered from nausea and vomiting, a condition known as um, cannabinoid uh, hypermesis. And although sales of edibles uh, make up a small share of Colorado's market, the number of patients suffering from toxic side effects was found to be 11%. Uh, Edibles uh, and products... Containing the drug also were tied to unpleasant psychiatric symptoms and though rarely death, according to the study. It also found that marijuana users who sought treatment generally were younger and male. When people take something to get high, they generally don't uh, uh, don't want to get uh, high three hours later and be high for 12 hours, referring to the potency of some edibles. Edibles containing greater um, concentrations may produce uh, sort of a cyclic vomiting syndrome, the doctor warned. Enjoying a pot-infused edibles isn't completely safe, he went on to say, but it's hard to pinpoint all the side effects because of a lack of clinical trials. So make note. Meanwhile, during one uh, drinking one bottle of wine a week is as cancer-causing as smoking up to 10 cigarettes during the same time period. That's according to a new study. Now, we've been told practically the opposite. British researchers found that downing a weekly bottle of vino is on par with smoking five cigarettes for men and 10 cigarettes for women, according to the study published in the journal BMC Public Health. In total, the wine consumption increases a man's lifetime cancer risk by 1% and a woman's by 1.4, according to authors of the study who crunched UK health and population data. Our estimation of a cigarette equivalent for alcohol provides a useful measure for communicating possible cancer risks that exploits successful historical messaging on smoking, the report's lead author says. Teresa Hyde said in a statement, we hope that by using cigarettes as the, um, uh, as the comparator, we could communicate this, uh, this message more effectively to help individuals make more informed lifestyle choices. Now, wait a couple of weeks and we'll probably hear just the opposite, that a certain amount of red wine is good for you. Um, it's hard to uh, keep up with what science and medicine tell us about what we should and should not eat or drink and what's in our best interest. We do know that one in five people are eating themselves to an early death. That's according to a global study. Millions of people are dying around the world from poor diets, often packed with sodium, lacking in whole grains and fruits, according to a study published On Wednesday, the peer-reviewed Global Burden of Disease Analysis published in Lancet suggests one in five deaths, about 11 million, are linked to unhealthy eating habits. People don't consume enough nuts, seeds, milk, whole grains, according to the data. Instead, they consumed too much processed meat, sodium, and sugary drinks. The study affirms what many have thought for several years, that poor diet is responsible for more deaths than any other risk factor in the world. The study's author, Dr. Christopher Murray at the University of Washington, said in his statements. By the way, the deaths included about 10 million from cardiovascular disease, 913,000 from cancer, and almost 339,000 from type 2 diabetes. 
We're at the top of the hour. News and traffic up next. When we return, we'll talk to the author of Loving My Actual Neighbor, Seven Practices to Treasure the People Right in Front of You. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Liberty Coin and Currency. Well, we live in a time that is characterized by disconnection and polarization. But Jesus calls his followers, you and I, to love our neighbors as ourselves. Now, that can be kind of tough. The details of what that looks like can be pretty tricky. And in her latest book, Loving My Actual Neighbor, Seven Practices to Treasure the People Right in Front of You, Alexandra Kirkendall writes, In families, churches, and communities, we are missing each other. Often our intentions are good, but we get stuck. Well, in an attempt to help us get unstuck, she digs into the first chapter of Second Peter and examines seven important practices, whether it's the grocery store clerk or the uh, uh, the cubicle mate or the woman across the street. She offers practical ideas of how to embrace those times of natural interactions where we intentionally show others we care. Well, Alexandra Kirkendall is the author of Loving My Actual Neighbor, Loving My Actual Christmas, and um, The Artist's Daughter and the co-host of the Open Door Sisterhood podcast. A popular writer and speaker for moms around the country, Alexandra has been featured on Good Morning America, Focus on the Family's Daily broadcast as well. She lives in Denver, Colorado, with her husband and their four daughters. She joins us today to help us uh, love our neighbors as we ought. The book is titled Loving My Actual Neighbor. I love that title. Thank you so much for joining us, Alexandra. Oh, thank you for having me. When the book first arrived, I, I, I loved the title because loving one's neighbor seems like something we all would agree to. And we have a general idea that we're kind to people. But loving our actual neighbor and being intentional about it is something that we perhaps struggle with. And your book helps us to, uh, to address that. In the introduction, you write, I'm writing this book because I need it. <laughs> Explain what you mean by that. Well, I realized after the a presidential election a few years ago that I was living in an echo chamber, just like the rest of the country was. And I thought, am I unconsciously, because I wasn't consciously, but am I unconsciously surrounding myself with people who think like I do because it's easier? And I thought, probably I am. So I became aware of small decisions and small habits I did to not avoid people, but maybe to avoid conflict. And I thought, I don't know that this is what Jesus was talking about when he said, love thy neighbor. He was talking about loving the people right around us, regardless of our differences. And so I wanted to figure out the how of beginning, because as I talked to people, I realized I wasn't alone in knowing that I probably could do a better job But the starting place is often the place where we feel most blocked. Because once we start getting into relationship with people, we find things in common and we start to enjoy each other. But the getting started can be hard. I know that many of us are reluctant because we make assumptions. And you describe perhaps one of the assumptions we might make. We may disagree on major issues that will come up and make it awkward. Uh, We're not quite Mm -hmm. sure how to start the conversation. We're not sure what our end game is and so on. What do you find is most common uh, as to why people fail to uh, reach out to and love their neighbor as Scripture clearly says we ought? Well, I found there's two kind of Um, categories. When I ask people, what keeps you from loving your neighbor like you'd like to? 
a lot of people <laughs> have quick answers. Um, his, his dog stays up all night barking. Um, he drives on my lawn. He or she um, yells at her kids and I can't um, get away from the noise of that family. There are some of us that have a real immediate response because we have actual conflict with our actual neighbors. Mm -hmm. So that's one category of, I think, our population of people. But the other is more of an internal thing that is a hesitation that we are going to say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing. There's a fear that we won't do a good job, not just that our neighbors are making us angry, but that we won't do a good job in loving them. And that the, the differences will create innate conflict. And so um, I think the first step we need to do is realize we are probably going to make some missteps. And when we acknowledge that we're not going to do it perfectly, we then have the freedom to go in knowing it's going to be a little bit messy and a little bit awkward. Do we sometimes overestimate our neighbors' expectations that if there is going to be some connection, it's their expectation is it's going to be done perfectly, that they're just waiting to be offended so that they can you know, end any connection that we might be trying to make? We need to just relax a little bit? Yeah, and that's one of my chapters is really we need to lighten up because mm-hmm. we do tend to take ourselves pretty seriously um, as people, but especially as Christians, we think, you know, we're talking about important matters often in the church, and uh, and spiritual things can feel very big and important, but if we just lighten up and find common ground with our neighbors around small things that may seem trivial, then we can um, start to connect in really natural ways. But I think you're right. We often assume that there's going to be more difference than there actually is, mm-hmm. and we are afraid that there's going to be more conflict than there turns out to be. Now, as I mentioned earlier, the book is based on Principles found in Second Peter. Remind us of Second Peter and how that uh, helps us understand how to approach those who are our actual neighbors. Well, I was talking to a friend of mine about this idea of what does it mean to truly love our neighbor, and she said, you know, there are these couple of verses in the first chapter of Second Peter that I think help us build a framework for loving our neighbors in a way that's sustaining. Because sometimes as Christians, we think, oh, yeah, oh, love your neighbor. I'm supposed to do that. And we add it to our to-do list, and we get excited about it for a little bit. But then it gets hard, and uh, we get uncomfortable, and we kind of pull back, or we just tucker out from the effort. And so these verses really are a way to create a sustaining Mm -hmm. model for loving our neighbors. And we often think about giving when we think about loving our neighbors, giving out of this generous spirit. But this framework really ends with giving. But first, we need to be humble, ask questions, listen, be uncomfortable, accept our neighbor's circumstances. Like I said, lighten up a little, and then we can give because then we're giving out of a place of knowledge of our neighbor. Do you think people have more difficulty connecting with their neighbors today than, say, decades or generations ago, particularly given how mobile we are and disconnected our communities tend to be? You know, I've only lived now, but I can, <laughs> I can assume that that is the case. My uh, next-door neighbor, who is probably around 70 years old, I gave her a copy of the book this week. She came over yesterday and said, it used to be this way. So I think there is some 
um, element of truth. I don't want to over spiritualize mm-hmm. the past, but um, just the amount of time that we spend looking at screens, we have to be spending less time in face-to-face interactions. And because these screens allow us to sift through to voices that we tend to agree with or allow us to be really rude to people we don't agree with, Mm -hmm. we are losing the art of being with people who are different than us and who really disagree with us and being civil in that. And that is part of what this book is about, is how to remember how to do that. Yeah. Yeah. We're talking about the book titled Loving My Actual Neighbor, Seven Practices to Treasure the People Right in Front of You. And it's sometimes easier to treasure people far away than the ones right up to us because it requires right close to us, rather, requires an investment. And as one of your principles suggests, we might feel a little awkward along along the way, but we need to be willing to experience that awkwardness for the value of, uh, first of all, obedience um, but cherishing those people who are right in front of us. Well, let's talk about some of these principles that you write about. That you begin by holding a posture of humility. Uh, we may think because our our material wealth is superior to our neighbors, or theirs superior to ours, or we tend to manage things differently. We may um, suffer from a bit of arrogance. Um, why is humility so important when we're beginning to make that connection, or at least anticipating making connection? Sure. It right-sizes us, I think, into where we fit in the universe. When we remember that God is God and we are not, we suddenly have an even playing field with our neighbors as far as access to truth and knowledge. And we can remember we are made in God's image, but he is ultimately in control And the same is true of our neighbor. Our neighbor is made in God's image, and we have access to God's grace, as does our neighbor. And when we remember where we fit in the paradigm of the world, it helps us remember that we don't know everything. Mm -hmm. We just simply can't. And even though we think we've made um, a worldview based on all of this great information that we've collected over our lifetime, the truth is it is limited information. And our neighbors have a worldview based on their limited information. And so when we go into interactions and conversations, when we have that vantage point, things tend to go better. Yeah, yeah. We're going to take a quick break, but we will continue our conversation. Again, we're talking with Alexandra Kirkendall, author of Loving My Actual Neighbor, Seven Practices to Treasure the People Right in Front of You. And as you're listening, think about some of the people whose lives yours connects with or connect with. And uh, perhaps this is a great start to love the neighbor that's um, actually in your your circle of uh, friends and influence. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and I'm continuing a conversation with author Alexandra Kirkendall. Her book is titled Loving My Actual Neighbor. She uh, takes her influence from Second Peter, and the subtitle is Seven Practices to Treasure the People Right in Front of You. And just before we... Uh, Uh, took a break. We were talking about holding a posture of humility. I think one of the other things that makes us reluctant to approach our neighbors, our actual neighbors, is knowing what to say. And you encourage us to ask questions to learn. We don't have to come with all the answers. We don't have to dominate the conversation. But asking questions is a great way to get to know others and to demonstrate that humility that you just spoke about. Right. And we want to remember that we're asking questions to learn. That's Mm -hmm. the end goal. Because we can use questions in a manipulative way, 
We yes. can ask questions that make people feel uncomfortable and put on the spot, and that's not the intent. The intent truly is to draw out our neighbors and to learn from them, and especially to learn their stories. Because as we learn about people's individual experiences, we start to get to the heart of who they are, why they think the way they do, why they feel the way they do, why they make choices that they do. And it often has to do with the story behind their life. Mm -hmm. And learning that story can help to knit our hearts together. Um, You Mm -hmm. also suggest being quiet, which is connected to um, asking questions, but being prepared to listen. Again, sometimes we ask a question in order to be manipulative, but we need to be good listeners. Right. And it seems a little obvious to say we need to be quiet to listen, but we often need to do more than just not talk. We need to quiet our spirits and quiet our minds as our neighbors are talking. I'm often thinking about what my response is going to be instead of listening to the other person. And so if we give ourselves some freedom to slow down a little bit and simply listen, we can trust the Holy Spirit to bring to mind questions or responses to say. We need to be mindful of how we are responding to our neighbors, though. We need to be mindful of our body language, our Mm -hmm. facial expressions, and uh, the things that we do say with our words. But often we are quick to respond, and I think we need to slow down a little bit in our response. Yeah, yeah. Now, we talked about this a, a bit a few moments ago, but you suggest we need to stand in the awkward. Anticipate that there are going to be moments where you feel awkward. Just be willing to stand in that for the sake mm-hmm. of relationship. Right, because the truth is if we're with people, at some point it's going to get uncomfortable <laughs> because no one's perfect, right? So two imperfect people bumping up against each other, there's going to be some kind of disagreement or conflict or just awkwardness. And we now live in a time where as soon as that happens, our tendency is to pull back. And my challenge to readers is to stay in it because if we feel a little bit uncomfortable, chances are the person we are with senses that. And if we stay and they know that we are staying, even though there's some discomfort, what we are telling them is, you are more important to me and this relationship is more important to me than my own comfort. And I think that's what starts to build trust. And trust is what is going to knit us together. Mm -hmm. Now, your next chapter is titled Accepting What Is. Now, I've listened. I've asked good questions. Now I have my laundry list of ways to fix the other person. (laughs) But your chapter is titled Accepting What Is. What is my goal in developing that relationship when I I think maybe I have some answers. Right. Well, I think you're welcome to give answers if somebody has asked for your opinion. (laughs) And that's, um, you know, we all are a little challenged in that, and maybe personality plays into it some. But when we uh, accept our neighbors' circumstances or choices, what we are telling them is, I see God's creation in you. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean that we are approving of their choices. And sometimes as Christians, we get those confused. We think that by accepting who our neighbors are, we are approving of all of their choices along the way. And what we're doing is we're going back to that posture of humility and we're right-sizing ourselves. And we're saying, there are some things that are out of my control, including my neighbor's free will. And my job here is to reflect God's love 
back to my neighbor. And it frees us up from trying to control a situation or a person and really allows us simply to control our own responses to our neighbors. Your last chapter, the seven of the the seventh rather of the treasures, um, as we're uh, practicing to treasure the people that are right in front of us, is to give freely. Um, what are some of the ways that we can do that that are meaningful as we are attempting to love our actual neighbors? Well, we can give in practical ways. So we can give help. We can give um, our treasure, as we like to say in the church. So financially, we can um, give and meet people's physical needs. Um, just through the practical ways that we help our neighbors. But we can also give grace and forgiveness. We can give uh, our attention, which I think is a very rare gift for people to receive these days if we give people undivided attention. And we can do all of that better if we have put into place the other six practices first. Mm -hmm. So, All of these practices are meant to be done simultaneously, but the beauty of it is they do build on each other. So if you want things to go in order, I would suggest practicing these practices and focusing in on them one at a time in the order that they're laid out in the book. Once again, we're talking about Loving My Actual Neighbor, Seven Practices to Treasure the People Right in front of you. How has, um, uh, you write about uh, the idea of Saturday living, and how has that looked in your, first explain what it is, and how that's looked in your own life? Well, Saturdays are a great day to be with neighbors. I just had a Saturday, and we were at the soccer field and the basketball court and in the front yard doing yard work. It's a natural day to connect with our neighbors. So there's that surface element. But then as Christians, We live in an in-between space, and I think of Good Friday and the cross and the sin of the world that Good Friday represents, and Resurrection Sunday is the good news, the end of the story that we have access to as believers. But as we walk along this earth in our incarnational lives, We stand in between those two, the hard reality of the world, which is represented by Good Friday, and the hope of heaven, which is represented by Resurrection Sunday. And Holy Saturday is what's in the middle. Mm -hmm. And as we interact with our neighbors, that's where we live. We are with them in the gritty and the real. That's what we're not walking away from. But we're also pointing them to the hope that Sunday has to offer because it is the good news of the world. And so it's in that Saturday space that we serve our neighbors best. Mm. And as we're in spring and summer is coming, it's a great season to begin to anticipate and uh, prepare to reach out to those who are our actual neighbors. Thank you so much. I loved the book and uh, really hope our, our listeners um, we'll take seriously this challenge to love our actual neighbors. The book is published by Baker and uh, is available in bookstores. Thank you for talking with us today. Oh, thank you. Really appreciate Bye. it. Bye-bye. Uh, you know, this is that season when the lawnmower might start a little earlier in the morning than you would like, or the dog gets out and it's in your yard and you've got stuff that isn't your own, or at least your dogs, and there are annoyances that come Um, Maybe they don't mow their lawn as often as you do. Whatever the situation might be, this is a great opportunity for us to forbear and to learn to love our neighbors. And I appreciate how practical 
uh, the book is in outlining what Second Peter tells us about loving our neighbor. And uh, the book is, as I mentioned, currently available. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll talk with Jeremiah Gallus. He's a, um, a legal counsel with Alliance Defending Freedom, where he is a key member of the Center for Christian Ministries. We're going to talk about three churches who have filed suit against the California Department of Managed Health Care's mandate that forces churches to pay for elective abortions. Now, that may not seem all that uh, peculiar these days. We'll explain how Planned Parenthood is playing a role in all of this. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You are listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, in California, three churches have filed a notice of appeal in their lawsuit that challenges the California Department of Managed Health Care's mandate that forces churches to pay for elective abortions in their health insurance plans. Now, that may not sound all that unusual these days, but Alliance Defending Freedom attorneys who represent the churches discovered that the agency issued its mandate in response to specific demands from Planned Parenthood. Now, this is contrary to the uh, uh, federal conscience provisions and uh, what the practice in California has been. Well, here to talk with us about that is uh, Jeremiah Gallus, who is an ADF legal counsel, where he is a key member of the Center for Christian Ministries. Thank you so much for, uh, for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Well, we're not surprised that there would be an attempt to force churches uh, to pay for abortions, elective abortions in their health insurance plans. But there's something rather peculiar in this case. I mean, there is in every case, but Planned Parenthood um, essentially, um, forced isn't the right word, but they influence the California Department of Managed Health Care uh, to impose this mandate. Can you give us a little bit of the history of what happened there? Oh, sure I can. Um, so in, in August of 2014, the California Department of Managed Health Care issued what was really an unprecedented uh, ruling, and they told health insurance uh, plans that they had to cover elective abortion in, in all the plans, and that, that included churches. There was no religious exemption, um, and it was remarkable because, um, you know, I think most people expect certain freedoms and, and rights here in America under the Constitution, and those rights do exist, and everyone expects that churches um, should be free to operate according to their faith um, without being threatened by the government in this way. And and what our lawsuit uh, eventually uncovered was that California really went out of its way to force these pro-life churches to pay for abortions through their insurance plans. And the coordination that took place between the government there and radical pro-abortion groups like Planned Parenthood is really breathtaking. So what we had was... Um, basically evidence that we uncovered that Planned Parenthood went to the Department of Managed, Catholic, uh, Managed Healthcare after uh, two Catholic universities in the state had taken steps to bring their health care plans in, into accordance with their religious beliefs and basically demanded that the department backtrack on allowing Catholic universities and other religious organizations to do that. Um, and sadly, the department... Uh, bent to the will of Planned Parenthood. Now, what role does Planned Parenthood in in terms have in terms of uh, influencing California Department of Managed Healthcare? I mean, do they have a seat at the table? Um, what? How do they wield their influence? And did they in this case? Yeah, what we saw is that Planned Parenthood has remarkable influence within the state of California. 
basically all they had to do was send a letter to the government officials or an email to the government officials and request a meeting, and they were promptly given one. And Planned Parenthood, what the email showed was that Planned Parenthood put forth its own interpretation of state law, which contradicted uh, the department's own interpretation, one that they'd been following for over 40 years, and um, the department just went along with it. It went along with the Planned Parenthood's um, interpretation, the application of the state law, um, and no one else had a seat at the table. The religious organizations that were actually affected, because that were the only plans that were affected, were those that were purchased by religious organizations, were not given an opportunity to provide their views and comments on what state law is and what it should be. Mm. My understanding is they threatened to promote their own legislative uh, solution, in quotes, if the administrative agency didn't act, which tells you they have significant power and influence over that agency and over the state of California. Yes, exactly, exactly right. And it was almost almost like a veiled threat where they say, look, we'll take this to the legislative branch. Um, and, and then it all gets out in the public, right? And then and you have churches and religious organizations that then have an opportunity to defend themselves, to explain why the Constitution protects churches and religious organizations from that sort of government intrusion. Um, and, and you likely end up with a religious exemption in that, that type of scenario, given the competing pressures that would be put at play. But be, because they did it behind doors without anyone knowing about it, um, those other interested parties, the churches and religious organizations, um, didn't have an opportunity to provide their, their views. And it's that sort of overt targeting of people of faith that the Constitution and the First Amendment is specifically meant to guard against. And so that's why we brought our lawsuit. Now, um, the three churches uh, involved filed a notice of, uh, of a lawsuit and then a notice of appeal on Thursday in their lawsuit. What does that mean, a notice of appeal? So a notice of appeal means that we're a- appealing to uh, the Ninth Circuit a, an unfavorable ruling that happened in the lower court. And what happened is the lower court um, took a look at the church's complaint and the legal claims that they were bringing. And despite all this evidence that only religious organizations would be um, affected by this change in in law, that the department did this in direct response to Catholic universities and therefore was targeting people of faith, the district court essentially said that Yes, despite all those facts, you can't prove that the agency did it because of religious beliefs. So even though it only may have affected those those religious organizations um, and it only it only fell on them as opposed to other employers, you can't prove that they did it because of those particular religious beliefs. We think that's um, that gets the law wrong. Um, the Constitution um, protects targeting of people of faith. Um, it, it protects um, against laws that fall in effect only people of faith. Um, and so that's why we appealed to the Ninth Circuit. So what happens next? Well, what happens next is we'll be given the opportunity to present uh, the church's legal arguments to the Ninth Circuit. Uh, we'll do that through written briefing. Um, and then the state will be given an opportunity to respond, and then the Ninth Circuit will will make its decision. And we're we're trusting that the Ninth Circuit um, gets this this case right and recognizes that the Constitution has always protected churches from this sort of government intrusion, and that no 
church or, or anyone else really should be forced to participate in funding abortion and that um, churches will remain free and these three churches in particular will remain free to operate according to their faith. Now, when you say the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, uh, immediately what comes to mind is it's the most overturned court. It tends to lean to the left, although that's changing at some point in the not too near future. Are you confident that in this particular circuit court that you're likely to uh, to get the uh, the kind of decision that you need? Well, it, it is always hard to say and predict what a court's going to do. And, and of course, you know, we're, we're aware of the Ninth Circuit and its history there. But we really think that this is an unprecedented intrusion on religious liberty. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're, ta- we're talking about churches and religious organizations being forced to pay for abortion, something their religious beliefs teach is the taking of an innocent human life. And so, you know, regardless of where the courts may have fell on other religious liberty issues or, or other, you know, social issues, um, we do think this is different, and we are hopeful that the Ninth Circuit recognizes that if the First Amendment means anything, it means that churches cannot be compelled by the strong arm of the government to do something that their religious beliefs teach is murder. Well, we will certainly watch with great interest uh, what happens next, and I appreciate your taking the time to tell us about it here today. Thank you so much for having me. You're so welcome. Again, uh, Jeremiah Gallus is uh, legal counsel with the Alliance Defending Freedom, where he's a key member of the Center for Christian Ministries. Uh, talking about three churches, and those churches in the case Foothill Church versus Roulard um, is Foothill Church in Glendora, Calvary Chapel, Chino Hills in Chino, and the Shepherd of the Hills Church in uh, Porter Ranch. And uh, they filed formal complaints with the Department of Health and Human Services as well against um, the California uh, Health Authority regarding its mandate and the violation of federal conscience law as well. And those came on the heels of a complaint filed directly uh, to the California Health Authority that responded by uh, affirming its decision to force all plans to cover all abortions without any explanation or any exemptions. So, uh, again, I'm grateful for Alliance Defending Freedom. It's an alliance-building, nonprofit legal organization. They advocate for the rights of people to freely live out their faith. And this case originated in 2014, and here in 2018, uh, we're hoping for a favorable decision by the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, and we'll follow that, um, uh, that case as it develops. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Tomorrow, I am looking forward to a conversation with Stephen Pick. He is the executive director of Journey Children's Theater. He is also a graduate of and a performer and uh, has been trained through Journey Children's Theater. It's got a really interesting story. If you're not familiar with this amazing uh, ministry, we're going to talk about that tomorrow and looking forward to that. They also have an event coming up. We'll let you know the details uh, to further plumb the depths of this great, uh, great group. On Wednesday, we're going to talk with Larry Gadbaugh. I recently received a uh, uh, an email newsletter from Larry, and it uh, focused on four changes happening at First Image. And those, of course, include the Pregnancy Resource Centers of the Portland metro area. I invited Larry to join us to talk about those changes and what we can expect in the days ahead with regard to pro-life ministry 
here in the Portland metro area. Also, Steve Cleary, uh, we're going to talk about the release of Pilgrim's Progress, the movie. It's not, it's computer generated. I'm not sure how to describe it, but it's, uh, I refer to everything as animation because I'm old school, but it's computer generated. It's actually very well done. And it's coming out soon. So we're going to talk about Pilgrim's Progress. I can remember a season in my young life when it was all the rage, this, the book of Pilgrim's Progress. And people were just reading the original, and then there were some adaptations that came out. Well, this new um, feature movie uh, will introduce a whole new generation to the story, which faithfully reflects uh, what was originally written. And then on Thursday, Africa New Life is going to join us for the annual Radiothon Food is And quite simply, the effort is to provide food where it is needed to children in Rwanda. You might recall that Africa New Life was birthed right here in the Portland metro area. It has a long uh, connection to our community. Uh, and uh, we're going to recall that history, but also the uh, the need that they have. They have been working so effectively that, in fact, the Rwandan government has given them greater authority over uh, many of their schools and feeding programs. It really is a complement to the caliber of work that they're doing, but it also brings with it greater uh, need for help. So we're going to talk about that when um, the folks from Africa New Life uh, join us right here in studio. In fact, we're going to have the executive director from the Portland office with us for part of that as well. You can uh, start to think about it and check it out at kpdq.com for more information that might help you prepare for what you'll be hearing on Thursday. And then on Friday, we, of course, will cover whatever breaking news might uh, occur on that day, but we will take a look at the lighter side of the news. Well, we think politics here are bad, and quite frankly, they certainly can be. If all of your eggs are in that basket, if what happens in Washington or Salem or, for that matter, the city council... Uh, county council is what you're hanging your hope and your future on. Uh, I First of all, I pity you. It's a, a, not a very stable uh, thing in which to invest all of your hopes and dreams. Um, uh, but if you think things are bad here, you might take a look at what's happening in Israel. Tomorrow is the day uh, that Israel has its election. Uh, and uh, because of the time difference, tomorrow will be tonight for for us and by the time we wake up tomorrow we'll probably have at least a fairly good sense if not final numbers of that election um uh, blue and white party leader Benny Gantz who is running against Benjamin Netanyahu um dismissed the prime minister and his assertion that right wing rule is in danger saying it's not right wing rule in Israel it's Netanyahu himself and of course he's under um uh, indi- he's been indicted i think is the right way to put it um, again, uh, the, his opponent said the right is not in danger in Israel. Netanyahu is in danger. It's not a security threat, but a legal one. Again, speaking of his opponent, Benjamin Netanyahu, facing a possible indictment in three corruption cases, including one charge of bribery. Netanyahu's been rumored to be planning to condition or tacitly link entry um, to the post-election coalition he hopes to form on support for the so-called French law which would shelter him from prosecution as long as he remains in office. So there's certainly an incentive to remain in office. Significant election. President uh, Trump did not endorse either of the two candidates, in fact, said in a statement uh, earlier uh, today that he supports either one of them, but does believe that keeping Benjamin Netanyahu in place would be uh, the better option for some of the initiatives that uh, the two of them have worked on and agree on. But tomorrow is Election Day, and that could uh, signal significant changes coming, or it could signal not so much because we we don't really know which of the two will win. And his opponent, who is a military background, 
Um, if that individual is able to form a coalition government, which is how they do it there, uh, we'll see what direction they're likely to take. Meanwhile, three U.S. troops and one contractor were killed by an improvised explosive device in Afghanistan today. That was near Bagram Air Base. The Pentagon announced three U.S. service members were also wounded in that blast. As you and I conduct life, as we um, often do, we have to remember that there are men and women in uniform who continue to stand uh, for our safety. And while conflict has ended and there's no war going on, per se, uh, they are in harm's way because they wear the uniform. Three of them lost their lives today. Those hurt were evacuated. They're receiving care, the Pentagon said. The names of those killed are being held back for 24 hours until the notification of next of kin has been completed as per the Department of Defense policy. And for that family, their uh, their lives are in many ways shattered with the announcement of the loss of a loved one. Again, when there are there's an end to hostilities, you, we tend to get the impression that, well, our men and women in uniform are now safe, but that may not be uh, may not be the case. I didn't think I don't think I mentioned it on the air, but about two, three weeks ago, my nephew became the youngest commander of a naval vessel uh, in the um, in the military. Um, And every time I read about these kinds of things, every time I read about what's happening on the seas, he's stationed in the Middle East. Uh, I'm very concerned and and, uh, certainly brings me to my knees to pray for his safety and those uh, with whom he works. But we would do well to remember that there are those who are standing by, who are standing in the gap for our sake, uh, in order that we can be free and safe and all of the things that Um, that we enjoy. Now, again, tomorrow on the program, we're going to talk with Stephen Pick. Uh, He is the executive director of Journey Children's Theater. In fact, he's a graduate. He came up through the ranks and studied theater. He has a very interesting story, but I think you'll be very interested in the work that Journey is doing in training young people uh, in the performing arts. And they are doing some incredible, I would say, professional level uh, theater. They put on plays um, several times during the year and they have locations Uh, in Vancouver and several in the Portland metro area as well, I think in Beaverton. So we're going to talk with Stephen Pick about that. I'm looking forward to it. And again, I want to remind you that Thursday is our Africa New Life Radiothon, and we would encourage you not only to listen, but plan to give generously to those who simply need food. It's just as simple as that. I want to thank James Blinn for producing today's program, Clark Hilton for engineering, and thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.